This episode of Israel Story is brought to you by our season sponsors, the Jerusalem Portfolio, a professionally managed investment portfolio of Israeli-focused public companies listed on the Tel Aviv, U.S., and London stock exchanges. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to learn more about how you can invest in the Israeli innovation, creativity, and vision that made the desert bloom. There's no better gift or investment than owning a small piece of the Israeli economy. The process is easy and convenient, and in just a few minutes you can both make a wise financial investment and an ideological statement. Visit MyStakeInIsrael.com to open your account today. Hey Israel Story listeners, it's Oren Harmon, Mishi's brother. You're about to listen to an episode called Achi, which is Hebrew for my brother. And right before we dive in, I wanted to say that today's Giving Tuesday, an international day of charitable giving. So if you believe in Israel's story, if you enjoy it as much as I do, and no, not just because my brother is the host, I hope you'll consider supporting the show. Just go to the website israelstory.org, click on the pop-up, and give. Thank you. Meet Ronen Bezalel, a good friend of my brother's. So my name is Ronen Bezalel. I'm married to Shira. Um, we have four children, Yair, Nama, Inbar, and Dori. And what more do you want to hear about uh, Ronen Bezalel? There are actually a ton of things to say about Ronen. He comes from a large Jerusalem family. He's one of seven kids. And he's a well-known serial entrepreneur in town. He owns construction companies, printing companies, all kinds of things. But I wanted to talk to him about something else. About the word achi, my brother. You see, if an alien landed in Israel today, it would probably think that achi is a form of Hebrew punctuation. We always call achi, 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 which is bro, bro, bro. I think that I'm calling achi to people at least 50 times a day. You know, from in America or in, uh, in Britain, you call someone a pardon or excuse me. In Israel, you call achi. How much is the bread, achi? How much does the, the a kilo of steak will cost me, achi? Now, as Ronen pointed out, achi also has many practical advantages. With achi, it means that you are coming with a, with a good uh, uh, vibes to someone. And from time to time, it's even better because if you don't remember uh, the name of someone, when you call him Achi, he won't get upset on you. And uh, it happens a lot. Uh, I'm ashamed to say that I, I don't remember. So even you, I can't, uh, I, I hardly remember your name. Achi. But Achi can also get quite confusing. When Ronen's eldest son Yair was six, they were walking down Derech Bet Lechem, a commercial street in Baka, in Jerusalem. Where you go on Derech Bet Lechem, you call Achi to at least six or seven uh, persons. So Ronen says hi to his brother the dry cleaning guy, his brother the fruits and vegetables guy, his brother the butcher, his brother the florist, and on and on and on. You walk in the street and say Achi to everyone. They all Achi. I, I don't even know their names, I, I, so I call them Achi. Taking in all this brotherly love, Six-year-old Yair turns to his father and asks, How can it be that I have so many uncles, Dad? Because they are all Achi. Then I had to explain him that Achi, it doesn't mean that he's my brother. 
So how did everyone on the street become a brother? Are we really one big fraternity or brotherhood? Luckily, when it comes to matters of Hebrew slang, there's a clear go-to guy. How do I introduce myself? Uh, Dr. Uh, Ruvik Rosenthal, writer, linguist. I deal intensively with a modern living Hebrew language. Ruvik told me that Achi is all about creating informal intimacy. We don't like formalities. We really hate formalities. So if you say to somebody, Adoni, which means sir, it's insulting. Instead, he said, we use words that make intimacy, even if you don't know the man. And just today, in two hours ago, I saw in a cafe some young people speak to a 60-year-old customer. He called him Achi. And of course, he tells the story about society. And what is that story? The story is that we are all one big family. It uh, refers to the collective uh, sentiment of the Israelis, the collective genealogy, which I believe uh, goes back, back, back to the tribe system to, and to uh, yeshivas. And uh, Achi is one of the way to express this uh, feeling of intimacy, of being together all the time, part of a group. Here, everybody is Achi. Achi. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Our episode today, you might have gathered, Achi, my brother. The story we're about to hear, from our producer Joel Shupak, is about two brothers who, in an almost biblical fashion, led each other down an unusual path. Two brothers whose lives and faith took them far apart, and then back together. Two brothers who, you could say, are brothers in more than just one way. Here's Joel. Last summer, I found myself sitting at a kitchen table in the village of Ein Karam in the hills of Jerusalem. In front of me were plates of sliced meats and cheese, pickles, olives, a basket of bread. It's organic bread. <laughs> and two brothers in their 70s, Benjamin and Reuven Berger. Benjamin, have the cheese, please. Mm-hmm. Their beards were neatly trimmed. Their full heads of white hair, a little less so. They looked like they walked out of a Philip Roth novel and then put on some biblical leather sandals. So maybe really characters out of Jeremiah or Isaiah is more like it. We passed around the food and made little sandwiches on our plates. Where do you get deli meats like this? I have a hard time finding Super it. Super sold. Really? Yeah, and they cut it for you in front yeah. of you. And although it might sound like we're ordering at a kosher deli. In my times, I don't know what it's like now. If you ate a sandwich no, in America way, I was... with one piece of meat on it. Mm-hmm. There's actually something else going on here. So Lord, we just want to give you thanks and we want to give you praise. Because you are our God. And 50 years ago, these brothers say they heard the voice of God, and it sent them on a mission they never expected. So we just give you thanks for food on the table. We thank you for providing. As they bowed their heads, I looked around the room. The walls were full of devotional artwork, biblical scenes, paper cuts of Hebrew prayers. Even the door of the refrigerator was painted with scripture and colorful brushstrokes. Sitting there, I kept going back and forth. Are these guys modern-day prophets? Or out of their minds? 
I've always been fascinated by people who say they've heard God speak. Okay, maybe jealous. I grew up in a religious Jewish home with stories of prophets and miracles, and I was always listening for God's voice. When I was a teenager, my father, who was a self-employed businessman, unexpectedly became a rabbi. It all started on one Yom Kippur when, just like the Berger brothers, he felt like God was speaking to him. I, on the other hand, pictured God as an enormous mute stone. He, I always thought of God as a he, he just watched and watched, never blinking, never drawing closer, never speaking at all. I can remember endless mornings in shul, old men wrapped in talits, swaying, repenting, praying, and me in a white button-down shirt, eyes squeezed shut, wanting only to hear the voice of God. Now would be a good time, I would think to myself. After years of silence, I took the hint and stopped believing. But even so, when I heard about these brothers in the hills of Jerusalem, I was curious, because although I no longer believe in the God of my childhood, I still want to know what he sounds like. And while we're talking about voices, a quick note about the brothers. Unless you grew up off the two train in the Bronx, you'll probably think their voices sound pretty similar. I'll do my best to tell you who's who. The brothers grew up in New York in the early 1940s, and they were born for a very particular reason. Although, maybe prescribed is the word. Here's Benjamin, the eldest. My mom was experiencing tremendous loneliness, and the doctor recommended to her that a good solution would be to have a child. And three years later, just to be sure, she and her husband had another, Reuven. Well, I'm Reuven Berger. Benjamin and Reuven's parents had both escaped Nazi Europe, and their mother had to leave her own parents behind. They were eventually killed in Auschwitz. So that loneliness that her two sons were meant to cure, well, that's where it came from. And though these boys were brought up in an Orthodox home, Benjamin had doubts from a young age. I remember asking one of my rabbis, how do I know that God exists? He gave me some kind of an answer that didn't satisfy me at all. But for his younger brother, Reuven, it was a different story altogether. In my own way, I was always communicating with, trying to communicate with God. When the Berger family traveled to places with no kosher restaurants, he would go into the kitchen to look at the way the food was being prepared. We didn't eat meat in those restaurants. No, no, but you did go into the kitchen and you looked into the pots. What were you looking for? It's <laughs> a very good question. <laughs> the truth is that Reuven was looking for God. Not in the pots exactly, but in keeping kosher and following the laws, he was searching for a connection with the divine. As he got older, though, that impulse started to clash with another. I became aware of sexuality. He remembers getting his hands on Peyton Place, a scandalous novel that would later become a hit TV show. For me, it was absolutely uh, striking and startling that someone could write openly about sexual relationships. But any excitement he felt was quickly overwhelmed by guilt. I took the book and I threw it in the swamp right next to where our house was, and I, I made a deal with God that I would wait an hour or more between eating milk and meat than I did before. <laughs> but what happened then was a few weeks later, I, I went into the swamp and the book was, was muddy and it was even more attractive to me. <laughs> so while reading it, I felt even more guilty than I did before. <laughs> 
Reuven's guilt eventually steered him away from religion, and Benjamin's early doubts only grew. He also left New York for a job in Denmark. So by their 20s, both Orthodox burger boys had left the fold, and one had left the country. This certainly didn't help their mother's loneliness, but nothing could prepare her for what would happen next. When God first spoke to Benjamin, he was reading the newspaper. Now, you have to understand, I was not a person who was mystical. I was not a person who was looking into all kinds of different religions. What he was was a 26-year-old bachelor working as an architect in Copenhagen. He liked to think of himself as a sensible atheist. It had been many years since he believed in God. But this was all about to change. I came home from my work, opened up a newspaper, started reading it, and I suddenly have the sense there's somebody in the room with me, that there was a presence there. Presence drew closer to me. It was as though somebody took a key and put it into my heart and opened this very thick door and something of this presence flowed into my heart. So I sat there and I began to, to weep. Why are you weeping? I said to myself, I didn't know. And then I heard the voice of God. Did it sound like a Charlton Heston? Did it have a Brooklyn accent? Like, did it sound like a voice? It was something within, but it was something that went beyond. It was something that filled the whole universe. It just filled everything. And it was something that went into the depths of my being. It was both. And God said to me, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and I'm your God. And your life is like an open book before me. Now, you might have already made up your mind about people who claim to have heard God. But for Benjamin, this was real. As real as the newspaper he was holding in his hands. Though as strange as suddenly hearing from God Almighty himself might be, there was something even stranger. You see, this wasn't exactly the God he remembered from the Rabbi Salanter Yeshiva of Riverdale. I heard one word, Yeshua. Yeshua, better known as... Jesus. It was the Hebrew name of Jesus. When I heard his name, in one instant, I knew that he was the Messiah of the Jewish people. Just like that, Benjamin Berger had gone from believing in no God to utter certainty that Jesus, the most goyish figure out there, was the Messiah And what is a nice Jewish boy from the Bronx supposed to do with that? The next day, he carefully tried sharing his revelation with his atheist friends in Copenhagen. They thought I had lost my mind. I asked him what he would have thought had he been in their shoes. If somebody told me that they had met with God, I probably would have been extremely skeptical and maybe even sarcastic. But I would have probably wanted to hear well, how did this happen, and how, how can you convince me that this really happened? But no one in his life had any questions like that. And so I decided, I'm not going to share this with anybody anymore. I'm just going to keep this to myself. He knew he would eventually have to tell his family. But for now, he just bought a New Testament and began reading about his new savior alone. While Benjamin experimented with his sudden faith, His younger brother, Reuven, still in New York, was doing his own sort of experimenting. 
marijuana, hashish, uh, mescaline. Don't forget, LSD. this was 1967, after all. I was out in the world, I was seeking here and I was seeking there. And for a time, drugs seemed to fill the God-shaped hole in his life. I realized that I was touching a spiritual realm and I had to somehow become part of this greater all. But really, the drugs were nothing but an empty promise. At that point in my life, I had no idea who I was anymore. Back in Copenhagen, Benjamin started going to church. He knew he wasn't exactly a Christian, but was curious what other followers of Jesus were up to. So on one bright Sunday morning, he walked into the neighborhood Lutheran church. There were very few people in there, mostly elderly people. He wondered whether these elderly Lutherans had experienced the same kind of revelation he had, or if they believed with the same kind of intensity he now did. I had the impression that they didn't. So even in church, he was hesitant to open up. No, I came in, I sat down, I participated, and I left. It took him three years to tell his family. At first, he wrote them letters trying to explain. And then, in the fall of 1970, he flew back to New York for a visit. It was the eve of Sukkot, and he joined his brother Reuven and their parents for a holiday meal at home. That's when he told them, flat out, that he had become a believer in Jesus. In an attempt to reassure them, he said, That did not in any way mean that I was no longer a Jew. In fact, it meant exactly the opposite. The response, you might have guessed, wasn't exactly enthusiastic. My mother was just deeply distressed, deeply, deeply distressed. She connected Jesus with the Christians who had persecuted her family back in Europe, the ones who had remained silent as her parents were carted off to Auschwitz. But Benjamin's younger brother, Reuven, had an entirely different reaction. He was intrigued. His years of seeking and trying psychedelic drugs had left him confused but open-minded. He was 25 years old and had just dropped out of a PhD program. After studying literature, then cinematography, he felt no closer to knowing what path to follow. I was very tender at that time. After the tense meal, the two brothers went to talk in Reuven's childhood bedroom. As Benjamin spoke, something peculiar started to happen, something that will sound familiar. Here's Reuven. There was a presence of God that I had never experienced before. It was this holy love that I knew was the truth, and I understood that he was speaking to my inner man. Hearing details of his brother's divine encounter, Reuven started to have his own, right then and there. But instead of telling Benjamin, Reuven kept quiet. I guess I just uh, was living it within myself. I couldn't help but point out the obvious. I could imagine in your shoes, it, I would feel almost like sheepish or something. Like someone comes to me and says, oh, I had this profound experience. And then like, you know, the next day, oh, I, I did too, actually. Yeah, I don't know, was there a part of that? Like, it, it, it could be. <laughs> part of the younger brother, older brother thing, you might be right. But the younger brother was about to lead the way. Here's Reuven again. I was a believer for a very, very short time, very short time, just a few days actually. And then I just heard God speak straight into my heart. And he said, go to Israel, go to Israel. After that message, he did tell his brother. 
It was the first time either of them felt they had received concrete instructions from God. I mean, it's one thing to hear a voice and start reading scripture, but this, this was another level. I ordered my ticket the very same day, left everything. Did you have any sense of what you would do when you got here? No, I had no sense at all. But it was like the call of Abraham. It was something unknown, completely different, something that my people were hostile towards. It was going to cost me everything, and I knew it was the call of my life. When Reuven bought his plane ticket to Israel, he had no idea where he'd go after landing at the airport. But his brother Benjamin had a suggestion. I said to him, why don't you go to the village of Bethany? In case it's been a while since you've cracked open a Bible, the village of Bethany, or Alazaria as it's called today, is where Jesus is said to have raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, I had never been there myself. I didn't know what Bethany was like. But it just came to me. And sometimes God does things like that, sometimes. Bethany is in the West Bank. As the crow flies, it's about three kilometers east of Jerusalem. Today, it's a mid-sized Arab town. But back in 1970, it was just a small village. A few fruit markets, a traditional bakery, donkeys and goats in the streets. And then, this random Jewish boy from the Bronx showed up. One Reuven Berger, a strange outsider on a mission. It was very chalky not extremely clean. And yet for me, you know, it's like a man when he's in love with a woman and um, life just becomes beautiful. I was in a first love experience with Yeshua. When the rains came and the almond trees would blossom, I would cut some of the branches and put them in the house and the, the fragrance, the sweetness, it was just wonderful, wonderful. At first, Reuven actually lived off his bar mitzvah money, probably not what Uncle Morris had envisioned. And before too long, Benjamin packed up his life in Scandinavia and joined his little brother in the Holy Land. And that's where we began our life together, yeah. It was an unusual honeymoon. Two brothers, their new lord, and a house full of almond blossoms. But honeymoons, we all know, can't last forever. Hey guys, it's Mishi. We'll get back to the story in just a minute. But I wanted to make sure you all knew that Israel Story is hot on Instagram. On the podcast, you hear us. On Instagram, you see us. We post behind-the-scenes photos from our episodes and productions. We post updates on our stories. And more generally, show you the visual side of the audio tales you love so much. So, we'd be honored if you'd join us there. Or, if you already follow Israel Story on Instagram, share the account with a friend. Simply search for Israel Story in the Instagram app, or head to instagram.com slash israel.story. That's instagram.com slash israel.story. This episode is brought to you by Kotel HaMishpachot, the egalitarian Kotel. As you know, here at Israel Story, we've spent a lot of time this season thinking about the Kotel. 
And I can wholeheartedly recommend that next time you visit Jerusalem, you check out the egalitarian Kotel for Kabbalat Shabbat. I was just there this past Friday, and had a very meaningful experience. If you go, you too will have the opportunity of welcoming in Shabbat at the most symbolic of Jewish locations, and doing so with a beautiful service, alongside your spouse, daughters, sons, granddaughters, grandsons. As the sun sets over Jerusalem, everyone is together, singing stunning melodies and partaking in a traditional service. The tefillot at Robinson's Arch, on the southern end of the Kotel, take place every Friday evening. For more information and prayer times, check out the Facebook page, Kabbalat Shabbat, at the Egalitarian Kotel. This episode is also sponsored by The Branch. The Branch is a wonderful podcast that tells stories of everyday relationships between Israelis and Palestinians, Jews and Arabs. Dina Kraft, their fabulous host, has been reporting on these topics for more than two decades, writing for, among others, Haaretz, the Christian Science Monitor, AP, and the New York Times. And on the branch, Dina talks to regular people forging strong connections and having important and often complicated conversations about coexistence. You'll meet teachers at a bilingual school, ice cream entrepreneurs, farmers, musicians, chefs, social activists, doctors helping victims of domestic violence, and even bereaved parents who have chosen a path to reconciliation. The Branch is brought to you by Hadassah. You can find it at hadassah.org slash thebranch or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Okay, so you'll recall that before the break, Ruven and Benjamin Berger, the two newly converted brothers from the Bronx, were living in the village of Bethany, or El Azaria, in the West Bank. It was a new life, in a new country, with a new Lord. All right, back to the story. Now what is the way of faith? This is Benjamin again, the older brother. It's a mystery, it's hard to explain it. God knows what your needs are. If he provides for the, you know, the flowers in the field or the birds, how much more will he take care of you because you're one of his children? It's easy to believe that God's on your side when life is beautiful and you still have plenty of bar mitzvah gelt. But the brother's faith was about to be tested. In 1975, after five years in Bethany, they left. And in Benjamin's words, the Lord led them to the village of Rosh Pina in the Galilee. There, they found a rundown stone house and called it home. At first, the other villagers, all Jews, eyed them with suspicion. When people began to hear that we were Jews who believed in Jesus, they couldn't quite figure out what in the world is that. As Olim Chadashim, or new immigrants, they had been receiving a small monthly stipend from the Jewish agency. It was their only income. But they decided that if they truly trusted God, they couldn't accept this handout. We went to the woman in town who was in charge of the Jewish agency. We said to her, we've come here to tell you we don't want any more of the financial help. We believe God is going to take care of us. So she looked at us as though we were crazy. And honestly, she was probably right. The brothers were quickly running out of money. The little bit money that we had every day, we had a little bit less. And we reached the point where we didn't even have an egg in the house. And I remember going to the next-door neighbor and asking her for an egg. And she said she didn't have any. So we didn't even get that egg. That was on a Friday. 
This is where things start to get a little hard to believe. Or miraculous. Depends who you ask. On that particular Friday morning, these eggless, penniless brothers asked God for a sign. Here's Benjamin. We said to the Lord, Lord, if the table is set tonight with everything that we need, we will take it as an indication from you that we were not wrong. They waited in uncomfortable suspense. But a couple of hours later, Benjamin's wallet that had gone missing months before suddenly turned up. It was under a stack of drawing paper, in case you were wondering. Inside, there was just enough money to buy a chicken and some vegetables for a Shabbat dinner. Now, whenever I find my wallet, it feels like a miracle to me too. But then, well, this happened. A week later, I was supposed to go to Tel Aviv, but I didn't have money to even buy a ticket for the bus. I didn't know what to do. So Reuven says to me, pack your bags as though you had the money and make yourself ready to go. So I did. And as I was doing that, somebody knocks on the door. I open the door, I see somebody I did not know. A very kind of normal-looking young man. He says, is this the house where the brothers live? I say, yes. Before he says a word to me, he takes his hand, puts it into my hand, and puts a whole sum of money into my hand. So I said, who are you? What is this? He said, I got some kind of a vision. And God spoke to me and said, go to this town and give these brothers this money. The man was from Haifa, over an hour's drive away. But he didn't know where we lived. So he knocked on the door of different houses. Finally, somebody says, yeah, they live over there. With the money in hand, Benjamin was able to do more than just take the bus to Tel Aviv. It was enough to pay for the rent as well, for the house. The Berger brothers have many stories like this. And to me, they all sound a bit like the old Hasidic tales I heard as a kid. But these accounts and others like them started circulating in Rosh Pina. And people in the town saw this, and they saw that we knew what we were talking about. Slowly, a small community began to form around the brothers and their message. When you hear about sort of a community of believers, I'm always picturing flowing robes and, you know, beards or something. There was nothing like that. So there were no cultish haircuts or weirdo outfits but rather just a few ordinary families who pooled their money, shared their possessions, and prayed together. From that time, in different ways, we began experiencing the Lord providing for every need that we had. He would sometimes take us to the very edge, that's true, but he never failed us. They called themselves Messianic Jews, meaning Jews who had embraced Jesus as their Messiah. The Burgers certainly hadn't invented the movement, They'd be the first to remind you that all of Jesus' early followers were also Jews. But in the 60s and 70s, similar communities were popping up all over the world. Messianic Judaism was having a moment. In 1979, the Burgers led their flock from Rosh Pina down to Jerusalem. Benjamin and Reuven eventually moved into the secluded home in the hills of Ein Karim, where I met them. At times, members of the congregation have also lived there, but now it's just the two of them, living together, alone. I just like think, you know, imagining myself living with my own brother for decades, I think we would drive each other insane. Uh, Like, is that that a challenge for you guys? Like, 
you well, know, are you like leaving out the dishes? Are you like not cleaning out the shower? No, 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 no. We don't have a problem with that. No, I do all the dishes here, so there's no question about that. I strolled around their gorgeous property. It's like a private paradise. There are wind chimes and water features, a sculpture garden, lush landscaping, and two enormous dogs. That's, that's the bigger one. Quiet! Quiet! Bend the door with the mosquitoes. I know, the terrible mosquitoes out here. Even with the mosquitoes, I must confess, I feel a pinch of jealousy. When I think about my own longing to hear God speak, it's that sense of certainty that I wish for the most. I don't think I've ever really been sure of anything in my life. In fact, I wonder if that is even true. But the brothers, as soon as they heard the voice, they never looked back. They never doubted. Or at least that's the way they tell it. But despite their unwavering conviction, I sensed a certain sadness, too. Here's Benjamin. The Bible tells us over and over again that God is a jealous God. Every now and then, he'll single out some people and say, I want you for myself entirely. We believe in our lives that he called us this way. That is, called them... To remain single. That doesn't mean you don't have temptations. You do have temptations. Reuven feels the same way. The world we live in is so based on lust and gain and ambition. And when you live a single life and you don't have a wife and you don't have children, in a certain way, you're really living an inner life of poverty. And at times there is a certain loneliness. But... There's something bigger in your life. There's something bigger than even your physical existence. And it's it's this big God. He's big. Their life of celibacy, however, isn't the only source of isolation. Their newfound faith never stopped being difficult for their parents. In 1976, when Mordechai and Leah Berger realized their two boys were going to stay in Israel for good, they moved here too. But they chose to live in Tel Aviv to keep some distance. They never rejected their sons. But it was a very painful relationship. Nevertheless, the brothers would dutifully call every day and visit every few weeks. Their father died soon after the move. And as for their mother, the deep-seated loneliness that had led her to have children in the first place, it followed her for the rest of her life. Sure, she had a circle of friends from shul, but she had no pictures of grandkids to show them and no way to talk about her two sons who, in her eyes, prayed to a different God. Then there's the rest of the family. Aside from a more open-minded cousin who calls once a year, no one will speak to them. And in that, the extended Berger family kind of resembles Israel as a whole. You see, most Israelis are dismissive or even suspicious of Messianic Jews. At best, they see them as misguided Christians. But more often, they just think of them as manipulative missionaries, strange people who are trying to trick Jews into converting to Christianity by presenting it in a familiar package. But here and there, there are pockets of Israelis who, like the Berger brothers, embrace the message of Messianic Judaism. Today, there are something like 200 congregations throughout the country. And the small community that Benjamin and Reuven started in Rosh Pina and brought down to Jerusalem, they still lead it. In fact, it's their full-time job. I attended one of their services a few weeks after I first met the brothers. They gather in a church in Jerusalem's old city, right near Jaffa Gate. It's an echoey stone room with a domed ceiling high above 
and colorful stained glass windows along the walls. The day I went, the pews were pretty full, maybe a hundred people in all. They opened the service with the Shema, the foundational Jewish prayer. A prayer I've heard and spoken thousands of times, but I have never in my life heard such a stunning rendition of it. A chill swept up my body, and my eyes welled up. Did I think the heavens would open and the God of Abraham would finally reveal himself to me? I mean, kind of. It sure would have made a great end to the story. Alas, it's true. I don't believe in God. But I think I'm still waiting to hear from him. So in lieu of some great revelation, I'll end the story where it began. At that long kitchen table in Benjamin and Reuven's home. The three of us passing around a plate of olives and deli meats. So you have brothers and sisters? I have one of each. When I first met Benjamin and Reuven, I couldn't decide what I thought of them. Were they truly recipients of some divine message? Or, frankly, delusional? I obviously can't say whether God actually came down and spoke to these two brothers more than 50 years ago. And maybe that's not even the point. We clearly see the world very differently. But what I do know is that they invited me a non-believer and a skeptic into their home for a simple meal. And maybe that says more about who they are than anything else I could tell you. Now we can break bread. Yeah, yes, right. We are. Joel Shupak. Ari Jacob wrote the gorgeous original music in the piece. Thanks to Dina Kraft for her editorial help. Okay, it's the end of the episode, and time to tell you how rating us, giving us those five shiny stars and writing a glowing review, really helps us get to new ears. But the problem is that it's become such a cliché of podcast outros that I think many people sort of tune out. So, I'm going to go off script here a sec and say, guys, please, please go to Apple Podcasts and just do this. It literally takes less than a minute. And short of donating money to the show on this Giving Tuesday, it's the greatest help you can lend. It's easy, and it works. Thanks to you, we've now doubled our audience this season. And rating and reviewing us is the surest way to get us closer to tripling it. You can catch up on all our previous episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you usually get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. If you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org.
Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Fields, Shai Satran, Maya Kosover, Roi Gilron, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. James Fader and Niva Ashkenazi are our wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro from The Podglomerate is our marketing director. Adam Milliner mixed the episode. So, since my brother Oren generously opened this episode with a message about Giving Tuesday, he's also going to be the one to select the final song. Hey, Oren. Hey, Mish. So, which song do you choose? I choose uh, November by Shannon Street. How come? Because me and Shannon went to uh, grade school together. He was like a year above me, and, uh, and I hadn't seen him for many years, and suddenly heard this song, and uh, just... It really touched me. I started crying. It reminded me of, of, of our childhood. The song is about his wife getting pregnant again for the second time, and uh, he's talking to his sister, Tova, who was a classmate of yours and um, died. Yeah, we grew up together, and she died of cancer when we were 21. It just really touched me. It's such a beautiful and sad song about the love of brothers. And so I thought about you, and I thought it would be it would be a good song to finish this episode on this episode about about brothers, about Achim. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with a new Israel Story episode. So till next time, Shalom, Shalom, and Yalla Bye. Winter brings with it.
Good news. 